Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to Talking Tudors, episode 112. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and it's so great to have your company. As this is the first episode of the month, I'd like to begin by thanking the wonderful patrons who continue to support this podcast and welcome patrons who joined the Talking Tudors family in May. A very warm welcome to Amber, Kay Clark, Jess, Lee, welcome to Livia and Michelle, Laura, Karen, Marita, Carrie and Adriana, and also a very warm welcome to a number of others who joined without leaving their first names. I'm so very grateful for your immense generosity and support. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. June's prize is a copy of Peter Ackroyd's Tudors, sponsored by the FreelanceHistoryWriter.com. Do check out this amazing blog. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about Shakespeare's library is Stuart Kells. Stuart is adjunct professor at La Trobe University's College of Arts, Social Sciences and Commerce. He has twice won the prestigious Ashurst Business Literature Prize, including for a history of Penguin Books. Kells' shorter pieces have appeared in the Paris Review, Lappin's Quarterly, Smithsonian, The Guardian, National Geographic Traveller, Lit Hub and The Daily Beast. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles.
Welcome to Talking Tudor, Stuart. How are you? Good, thank you, Natalie. Very well, and you? I'm well, thank you so much. It's Friday. We're recording on a Friday, so that's always good, <laughs> I think. So yes. let's let's start by you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background. So my role is adjunct professor uh, in the College of Arts and Social Sciences at, at La Trobe University in Melbourne. Um, and in my career, I've worked in lots of different areas and researched in lots of different areas, including in publishing and in book selling. Um, mainly these days, I'm working as an author. Uh, and much of my writing is focused on books uh, and the book world. Um, and so, for example, I've written about libraries and publishing and print culture. And uh, I've been lucky enough to visit many of the world's great libraries, including some of the main Shakespeare collections in the US, um, the UK and Japan. That sounds fantastic. And we are here to actually talk about a book, and that's one of your books. And it's the one called Shakespeare's Library, Unlocking the Greatest Mystery in Literature. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So the, the book was published in Australia in 2018, and then in the US in 2019, uh, in print form and as an audio book. That feels like a long time ago. The idea of the book is to explore the search for Shakespeare's own books and documents, uh, really um, thinking about those uh, in the context of understanding his methods and achievements. But the book is also a bit of a walk through a series of bibliographical hoaxes. Before I came across your work, I actually hadn't really considered where Shakespeare's books had gotten to. So this is really interesting. So what actually prompted or inspired you to, to join the search for Shakespeare's library? mainly because I think it's fascinating. The idea of Shakespeare's library is central to a lot of different aspects of early modern studies and, and intriguing aspects of that. So, for example, it's relevant to the culture of the book at that time, how Shakespeare himself worked and, and the scale of his achievements as an author. Uh, and looking at that literature, uh, the literature on, on Shakespeare and, and um, early modern drama, to some extent, I was dissatisfied uh, that parts of the uh, literature didn't really picture Shakespeare uh, in a plausible way as a book person and as an author and as a, um, a literary phenomenon. Uh, and many of the earlier studies had really kind of weak foundations um, in their ideas about the world of the book and the nature of authorship in Shakespeare's time. And I also thought that a lot of the 20th century authors were overly protective of a particular idea of Shakespeare as a literary figure. Um, many of the books that they had written really um, were quite didactic and very linear in how they sought to defend Shakespeare. Uh, and so I thought a lot of the thinking around authorship and print production was, was um, misdirected. And I wanted to experiment with a different way of writing about Shakespeare and his achievements that was a bit less reverent and a bit more story-based and a bit more accessible. And along the way, I wanted to highlight some of the rogues and characters who were involved in the search. Yes, and I think we'll hear about a couple of those later on. But so when did this search begin? When did people first start looking for his library? It was really in the 18th century. So people like Nicholas Rowe, who was the first author to attempt a biography of Shakespeare, he was one of the earliest searches for Shakespearean documents. His brief biography of Shakespeare was published in 1709, uh, and it's not very accurate. Um, and uh, he didn't do very well as a searcher either. He advertised at the time for people to come forward with manuscripts and other documents, but it sounds like um, hardly anyone actually did. 
And so you've obviously been been doing a lot of work on this. So what evidence is there to suggest that Shakespeare firstly owned a library? Is there any? And do any of his original manuscripts survive? There's a variety of, of um, direct and indirect evidence. So we know from the from Shakespeare's writings that he that he knew a lot about books and book production. The plays and the poems often refer to printing and bookbinding techniques, for example. We also know from textual analysis of the plays that he drew on the writings of other authors very extensively. He was really a magpie, uh, and it's likely that he owned some of the source texts and the source works that he used in his own writing. There's also specific evidence that Shakespeare's home in Stratford-upon-Avon had a library, and that home was New Place, one of the grandest homes at Stratford. After his death, um, his daughter Susanna and her husband John lived there. And in the 1630s, there was a legal dispute which involved the under-sheriff and some bailiffs going to that home and removing what they called diverse books uh, and other, other goods to the value of around a thousand pounds. So there's evidence that there was a significant library there in those days. Today we have no known manuscripts of the plays or the poems. There is one document which is a, a manuscript of a multi-author play about Sir Thomas More and people hypothesize and, and propose that that was partly written by Shakespeare. I'm a little bit skeptical about that, mainly because it's so hard to prove um, because we have so few examples of his handwriting. But it's certainly true that of the main works, such as the key plays and the sonnets, that there are no manuscripts at all. Oh, maybe somewhere hidden in the attic of some mm. stately home somewhere, we hope. Now, a thousand pounds, that's a significant sum for the time. So it sounds like there were lots of books in that particular library. You've touched on some of the things you think may, it may have contained. Can you delve into that a little bit more for us? Yeah, the range of books that he sampled from was very diverse. So it wasn't just prior plays and poems. It was also histories and novels and other, other sorts of um, texts. And in addition to those sorts of um, source works, he probably had manuscripts and play scripts of his own work, um, as well as editions that were published in his own lifetime. The main printed version of the plays is the first folio, which, which actually was published after his death. But while he was alive, individual plays were published in quarto editions. So it's plausible that he had some of those. And one of the things that I like to think about is um, it's also possible, as was the fashion of the time, that some of his books might have been finely bound in gilt leather. But so far, and this is this would be another amazing find. So far, no one has found a, um, a Shakespearean book binding. Oh, there's so much to um, to still explore, isn't there? It's incredible. Now, you've mentioned some of those colourful characters that have taken part in the search for Shakespeare's library. Do you mind telling us a little bit about some of them? Sure, sure. So the search has been dominated by some pretty unreliable and dubious people. Some of them, uh, like Thomas Frognall Dibden, who was uh, described as the world's worst bibliographer, um, were honest uh, but incompetent. Uh, but a lot of others, people like William Henry Ireland, John Payne Collier, Thomas Wise and James Halliwell, were certainly dishonest. <laughs> they were uh, frauds and thieves and vandals and forgers. Uh, and then there were a few that were more sort of fantasists and had much more complicated psychology. And one of the strangest searches was a chap called Dr. Orville Owen, 
his claim was that there were secret clues and even whole plays embedded in the published text that there were clues you could find and if you followed the clues you would, you would find the, the hidden missing manuscripts but also that there were whole play texts embedded in the in the um, published versions and so he constructed a mechanical cipher reading machine which he called the wheel of fortune and the idea was that he would run through that a very large collage of the works of Shakespeare but also of other authors such as Bacon and Green and Spencer uh, and then use that machine to detect these hidden codes. So in addition to those over the years many people have come forward with books purporting to contain Shakespeare's notes or his signature uh, and nearly all of those are clearly bogus and not one of them has been proven to be genuine. And if you look across the claimed association copies, they're also different. Um, so it's pretty easy to tell at least a lot of them are bogus. Now, so what do you think happened? You know, obviously, this sounds like a really valuable library, a thousand pounds. So you'd imagine he would have left it to somebody or what do you think happened to the books after his death? The books aren't mentioned in his will, but that's not unusual um, because it may have been in a separate attachment or, or there's a whole bunch of other possible explanations for that. A lot of other wills from, from Stratford at the time also don't mention books, um, but it's likely that some of the books were dispersed around the time of his death. Otherwise, um, most of them, as, as I said, probably ended up at New Place and then they may have passed via Susanna and, and John Hall to their daughter, Elizabeth, who was Shakespeare's last surviving descendant. Her belongings um, may have passed to her executor or to her stepdaughters, um, and then who knows uh, where they went. After that, there's all sorts of leads to trace, and it's very difficult because in the 19th century, there was a fashion among bibliophiles to have books rebound, um, and obviously that obliterates a lot of the evidence around provenance, and even to have the pages washed to remove old inscriptions and things like that. So that is one reason possibly why uh, no genuine Shakespeare inscriptions have been found. But it's also the case, I think, my impression of Shakespeare is that he wasn't a very sentimental person or, or a writer of, of notes and inscriptions and that kind of thing. So that could be another reason why there are no uh, association copies at the moment. Interesting that you mentioned the the removal of the inscriptions because there's just some fascinating research that's come out now about Anne Boleyn's books of hours, mm. and one in particular at Hever that, that Kate McCaffrey discovered with ultraviolet light that there were inscriptions that had been removed from that book. So you never know. I think we're going to have to carry our ultraviolet light with us everywhere and just <laughs> be checking. Yes, it's a fascinating field and people are literally doing that in, in um, books that Shakespeare may have had contact with. They're looking with ultraviolet for old inscriptions and yeah, it's an amazing field and obviously provenance studies more generally and there was the exciting uh, discovery uh, I think last year of um, John Milton's copy of the first folio with his annotations in there as well. So yeah, that's an amazing field and I did see that discovery um, a couple of days ago, really interesting. I suppose we can't have a conversation about Shakespeare and books without <laughs> touching on the Shakespeare authorship question. So that's a theory or argument that William Shakespeare, in fact, did not write the plays and poems that are attributed to him. So when did this theory emerge and why do you think it, it was kind of born at this time? Well, there's lots of different aspects to the theory and to that whole uh, field. During Shakespeare's lifetime, there were criticisms um, of the extent to which he relied on the writings of other people. Uh, he was sort of accused of you know, relying on other people's work and just sort of tweaking it and that kind of thing. So that, that was a real conversation even when he was alive. But the idea of there being some kind of secret author 
in the background and that Shakespeare was just a front person, that didn't really arise until the 19th century. And uh, I think you can say that it was caused in part by events that happened in the 18th century, so long after Shakespeare. In the 18th century, there was almost a cult of Shakespeare and people like David Garrick, who was an actor and theatre manager, they created this image of Shakespeare, which was him as a unique and otherworldly genius. And so in some ways, the scepticism of the 19th century was a bit of a snobbish reaction to that. Like if you've got this amazing person who's this sort of, you know, unassailable genius, how could how could someone from a humble background be that? Uh, and so the, the theory was that it had to be someone, probably an aristocrat with a university education in the background. Um, and I think it's a general point that Shakespearean heresy and those sorts of authorship ideas sit within a larger conversation around conspiracy theories and quackery and bad scholarship. And that's grown since the 19th century as well. And so if not Shakespeare, who are, who are the, the people put forward as possible authors? Well, it's a very long list. There's literally dozens of people on the list. Some of the main ones um, and some of the varieties of heretics. Um, the Marlovians uh, believe that Christopher Marlowe wrote the plays and the poems. Um, the, the main problem with that theory is that he died in 1593, which is very early in Shakespeare's work. And some of them propose that he faked his own death, which is pretty unlikely. The Oxfordians um, propose Edward de Vere, the Earl of Oxford. Probably one of the more respectable and favoured uh, candidates is Sir Francis Bacon, who um, had a bit of an idea of literature and science and philosophy being these important spheres of writing. And the idea is that the plays are sort of some of his literary works. And a more recent trend is to give the works to Sir Henry Neville. And I think it's important to notice of those sort of main candidates most of them, with the exception of Christopher Marlowe, are aristocrats. And that tells you a little bit of the thinking behind the people who are putting them forward. Yeah, you're saying the names and I'm picturing the portraits as you're saying them popping up <laughs> into my head. Except Sir Henry Neville, I hadn't heard that one before. Is that a fairly mm. new one or has that been around for a while? Probably about a decade. Yeah, and quite a few people in Australia are uh, Nevillians. There was a widely published book maybe a bit over a decade ago, uh, called The Truth Will Out, which proposed Neville as, as the um, so-called true author. So what do you think is one of the strongest pieces of evidence that we currently have that William Shakespeare from Stratford-upon-Avon actually was the man who wrote the plays and the poems? Well, probably the strongest evidence is that his authorship was acknowledged and discussed in his lifetime and was captured you know, in, in, in writings and books at the time. People criticised his methods and, and his achievements and, and his um, approach as an author, but no one claimed or hinted that there was some sort of secret author behind the scenes and that he was just a front person. His name appeared on the books that were published while he was alive, a lot of them. We know he was a real person connected to the theatre, so in a lot of ways he would be a pretty unsuitable person as a front person for a sort of secret aristocrat, you know, it's pretty risky uh, to use a real person's name uh, and, and in a sense, someone that, that's not directly controlled. I think the main evidence, though, and the most compelling evidence about Shakespeare is really from what we know about how he wrote. We know, as I said, that he adapted prior works extensively. And uh, it's important to remember that he was working at a time when authorship and plagiarism were differently understood. It was a legitimate thing to you know, incrementally improve and enhance and, and um, dramatise earlier texts. And I think it's fair to say that his genius was in adapting 
um, existing stories uh, for the stage. And so given what we know about his method and, and how he was writing, there's really no need to even propose a secret author in that process. And I, I don't see there's any room for one. The, the understanding we now have of Shakespeare, of Shakespearean authorship really fits the historical Shakespeare very well. And one of the themes of my book is that in a sense, the secret author behind Shakespeare was, was his library. And, and the library of texts that he was drawing on. So in a sense, the absence of the library caused some of the heretical thinking, but the, the existence of the library is actually the solution to that because it explains a lot of how he got his stories and how he knew so much about different areas. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And, and the point about uh, the different ideas about copying people's work and plagiarism is really fascinating too, because anyone who's obviously read Chronicles of the Time, they are basically one person copies the one before them that, you know, and it's quite amazing how you can copy word for word at that point and, and include it as your own work. So you've obviously spent many years researching Shakespeare and his library. So I want to hear a little bit more about that journey, but also what's been one of the greatest or I suppose most memorable finds for you during this time? Sure. Well, there's some general things and then there's some specific things. I think in the general things, I've helped um, to picture a different understanding of Shakespeare as an author uh, and, and to help place the Shakespearean heresies into a wider tradition of hoaxes and, and fraud. I've helped show that um, in some sense, understanding the achievements specifically of Shakespeare himself is probably less important than understanding the achievements of that era. And I think that's very relevant to you and to your um, your series, because it's really about celebrating that moment and that literary moment. He was really part of an extraordinary literary world. And so I think we should celebrate that era as much as we celebrate the person. In relation to specific discoveries, uh, one of the intriguing things that I'm interested in is a volume in the Folger Shakespeare Library. It was written by Agostino Tornielli in, uh, in the, the early 17th century. It was published in Milan in 1610, and then this particular copy was shipped to England, where it was bound in quite a distinctive way. The cover features a, an image from a story from Ovid uh, that was also used in A Midsummer Night's Dream, and it's the story of Pyramus and Thisbe. And there are several other documented bindings with the same image, at least three others. Um, and those three, plus the one in the Folger, all date from Shakespeare's lifetime. Uh, so they already have a bit of a Shakespearean connection because of the subject matter of the binding. And one of the books is a copy of Ben Jonson's works, um, which was a volume very closely associated with Shakespeare. And Jonson himself was closely associated with Shakespeare. Um, the Folger Tornielli volume has a book plate in it that connects the book to Charles II and to the Restoration. So it has um, quite amazing provenance. One of the things that I've been writing about recently is that there's another book, the same book plate, um, that also has um, important Shakespearean connections. And that other book with that same book plate is one of the greatest treasures of the Folger Shakespeare Library. It's a finely bound copy of the first folio. So those sorts of leads, I think, deserve a lot, a lot more attention following those trails of provenance uh, and evidence like book plates and, and bindings. I think that's a fascinating area. Um, in addition to those kinds of leads, every month or so, people contact me with theories and discoveries and things like documents and inscriptions and artifacts. I'm a little bit of a lightning rod for people now uh, with those kinds of discoveries, which is great. And I try to be as positive as possible <laughs> about them, even when, they, even when they're not super convincing. Uh, and the reason why is because I see the, the finds and the theories as part of a, a wider, important conversation about Shakespeare and provenance. 
absolutely it sounds like a lot of fun and I I love that it's like you know a puzzle waiting to be solved and that mystery element I think is really really engaging and now you know you may get some people contacting you after this to say that they may have (laughs) an interesting lead which would be fun please please do and so what are you working on now Uh, I've got a few things on the go so I, I write in books about books and the wider sort of print world. And so I have a, a book coming up, which is a history of a, of a publisher and publishing house. But I also write in other fields, including in business and um, in the history of the professions and that kind of thing. So the thing I'm actually reading right now are, are the um, typeset pages of a book around Australia's rivers system, the Murray-Darling Basin. And uh, I'm doing some archival work at the moment uh, on a history of a, for a history of a major law firm. So the main things that I'm reading uh, <laughs> the next book and the book after that and yeah it's plenty, plenty plenty to keep you busy well that's so fascinating I when I came across your work I was just really intrigued because it's a slightly different angle and it's just yeah really interesting so I'm sure that our listeners are going to enjoy that and of course they can purchase your book and and see for themselves what they think so the last thing or one of the last things we do on talking tutors is play a little game of 10 to go so these are questions just to get to know you a little bit better You almost answered the first one when I was going to ask you what book you were reading, but maybe what's the last book that you either read or that you've bought? One of the things that I buy, which is very, very sort of uh, lateral to this conversation, is I buy all sorts of old pulp pulp fiction, old sci-fi and old uh, lurid comics and crime books. And I was up at the Bendigo Writers' Festival two weekends ago. And as you know, we've mostly been locked down. So I did a bit of roaming around of the secondhand bookshops in in, um, central Victoria, which is fantastic. So most of the books that I've bought recently are pretty kind of salacious uh, 1950s and 1960s pulps. And and I'm not going to read them because they're so (laughs) fragile. (laughs) But I I am tweeting about, if you look at my Twitter, you'll see all sorts of slightly interesting uh, covers and things. What about a favourite childhood toy or a memory if the toy if you can't remember the toy well I'm a toy person I, I actually collect toys uh, and I've loved I love the toys that I had when I was young and again the the Twitter conversation I'm in the toy subculture and, and was tweeting, tweeting recently about uh, this amazing toy I had which was this evil Knievel <laughs> motorbike and motorbike launcher and I'll tell you it was late late 70s so it gives you an idea of how old I am and so I don't have that particular toy anymore but I I remember it very vividly Uh, I still have some of the early Star Wars toys from around that period and uh, some of the Meccano and and early Lego as well so I could talk to you about toys for, for many hours. And what about an ideal Saturday night what does that consist of for you? A quiet time with my wife. Yeah. <laughs> we, we have a lot on and we've got two young kids. You know what it's like, especially yeah, having been locked down. It's been a long few years. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, just chilling out and watching a movie maybe like we like we used to. <laughs> yes, that sounds perfect. And do you have any writing rituals? My whole life is designed around <laughs> writing and rituals. I, I'm I'm very obsessive and about diet and about routine. As I said at the Writers' Festival, my whole life and my whole diet and my whole sort of daily routine is designed to avoid writer's block and to maximise my writing productivity. And so I have all sorts of rituals and all sorts of dietary things that I do. My dietary thing is terrible for heart health and for other aspects of health, but it's extremely effective for writing. So I eat a lot of chocolate cake and drink a lot of coffee and uh, I almost eat 
pretty much the same thing every day and I have a very very sort of set ritual every day and, and I do a lot of writing at night so a lot of it's around having clear air and, and having stamina. That's a good tip um, you know eat chocolate because Stuart said so so I like it. I really like it. I'm gonna and, try and then, it. And then if, if you have a heart attack it's not my fault. <laughs> not your fault exactly. Uh, what about a favorite holiday destination? We haven't been going too far of late but if you could where would you go? Well, we've we've done some wonderful trips with with our two girls in the last few years before COVID. We did a tour of libraries around the world, and we'd love to do that again. And we were vaguely planning a second library tour, which we would have done last year to um, to Italy and Spain and Ireland. So I would love to do that. Some of our favourite places in Australia, we, we love Broome and and we love Tasmania. I recently wrote about the Argyle diamond mine. Um, so I was up in the Kimberleys in 2019 and it's an incredible part of the world. So yeah, we, we, we're, we're traveling people and my youngest daughter, whenever I mentioned these places to her last year, she'd say, oh, can we go back there? Can we go back to Tokyo? Can we go back to you know Washington, et cetera, et cetera. So we will definitely be traveling again, hopefully next year. Absolutely. I know. I'm, I can't wait. We had to postpone two big trips, obviously, last year. So I'm waiting, waiting patiently. And I, I need to get to Broome. I haven't been to Broome, but it's on my list. So I'll have to get there soon. So what about a favourite library? Because you were mentioning that you've been to a library. Now I'm curious to know, do you have a, a favourite one? Well, all of my library people will be listening to this very carefully, so I have to tick off all of my local ones first. So the Ivanhoe Library, uh, the State Library of Victoria, and uh, other other key libraries in in, uh, in Melbourne and Victoria. Um, I love the State Library of New South Wales, and I, I'm also a fan of the National Library, partly for its collection, but partly for the building as well. Some of our most favoured uh, international libraries, um, I've spoken previously about the Library of um, San Galen or St Gaul, which is in a, a smallish town. It's actually a smallish city by Australian standards in Switzerland and uh, not far from Zurich and it was a monastic library going right back to the, the middle of the Middle Ages partly founded by these um, Irish and Scottish monks uh, going back into Europe and re-establishing these um, monastic sites and the heritage of that site that that particular library goes back to that era it's been rebuilt several times including as, as a Baroque library but it's just an incredible place um, magical setting incredible building buildings and just an amazing collection or series of collections and with this really rich history uh, and all sorts of strange conventions like they have this very very elaborate timber floor with with elaborate inlays and so you have to wear slippers over your shoes so that you don't damage the the floor when you walk around in there and they've got these beautiful uh, beautifully bound books in in original cases and things and then artifacts like this enormous world globe and a mummy and all sorts of different it's that's that real sort of that's real sort of 18th century idea of uh, you know cabinet of curiosities yes. and show, showing the universe in in its richness um so that's an incredible library but i'm a huge fan of, of some of the big american libraries like the library of congress and the um the, the morgan library in new york and i mentioned the folger in in washington and the smithsonian libraries so um yeah we, we visited quite a few of those in our family trips and um the, the girls have been really lucky and, and i've enjoyed it too Absolutely. A tour of libraries. I love that. That's got to go on my list for sure. Now, what is a new skill that you would like to learn? I'd love to 
be able to play the guitar. <laughs> I we didn't really have much music, as uh, in music lessons and that kind of thing when I was growing up. And I think drums and guitar <laughs> that'd be brilliant. Yeah, definitely. We, my, my eldest daughter has a drum kit, and I, I knock around a little bit on her drum kit. It was one of the dumbest purchases we made during the middle of lockdown, buying a drum kit. And we have a couple of old guitars here, mainly for my my elder daughter to to knock around with. And uh, she's learning. Yes, she's learning other instruments, which hopefully will give her some. Uh, guitar skills as well and so part of my plan is to learn from her so we'll see <laughs> good good plan and so you're obviously busy doing lots of things um what do you do to unwind well i don't is the short answer um i love hunting around for old books and that kind of thing and book shopping generally and and treasure hunting and that's that's something in my life and i've always loved doing I really do enjoy the writing and the, the bibliographical research and that kind of thing as well. So I've built my life around that, you know, life as an author. And I get a huge buzz out of getting the things actually finished and published and, and having things around them like this conversation and, and like, you know, um, op-eds and extracts and the whole sort of process of publishing. I've worked a little bit in a trade publisher many years ago and I've worked a little bit in academic publishing and I just love that whole world. And um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a real rush when you see the book for the first time and when you you know when you sign new contracts and that kind of thing so if I'm doing if you're doing something that you're sort of passionate about and you really enjoy then you don't have to unwind too much because you're kind of you're in a good pocket but yeah to unwind spend a bit of time just quiet time with my wife and and a bit of treasure hunting I guess and last question so we have a lot of listeners who themselves would like to write books and do some research and do some writing what advice would you have for them one of the best pieces of advice that I got early on um, from a from a mentor, a writer mentor, was to go after big topics, not to write on sort of fringy topics or small topics, but go after the big topics and make a contribution to those. In my view, Shakespeare is about as big as you can get. <laughs> uh, so I was deliberately taking that advice. In the actual practice of writing, I try to spend as much time as possible not writing in an academic style, you know, the kind of standard academic style, which is all about, you know, showing how smart you are or having complicated vocabulary and complicated syntax and, you know, all of those kind of, all the scaffolding. I just strip all that out and just, just write it like you're speaking and write it in very straightforward language, short sentences, simple, simple language, straightforward language. And what the other thing I try to do is really bring out the human stories. Um, when you're writing about things like libraries or professional services firms or mining and those kinds of things, it's pretty easy to make it dry. And But I try to bring out the human side of it and the, the strange things that happen when you've got people involved um, and the inter interpersonal dramas and the different personalities. And then that makes it much more uh, engaging and accessible for the reader because they can connect uh, through you know obviously most readers have um, similar experiences absolutely I think that's really great advice I think sometimes I've read some academic writing and think is this person's purpose to confuse me or <laughs> they don't want me to understand what they're trying to say so yeah that's really good advice so there is one more thing and that's our tutor takeaway so that's just something for our listeners to go off and explore after the show people often suggest books or websites to check out or is a film to watch or even a, a piece of music to listen to do you have a tutor takeaway for us 
I, I do. Um, my tutor takeaway is a website and it's called Shakespeare Documented. Um, and it's a, a wonderful resource that collects some of the leads and, and uh, documents and references that we've touched on that really capture aspects of Shakespeare's life. So they, these are the documents that refer to him while he was alive, published in his lifetime, or documents that have his signature on them or, or otherwise are connected to his writings. And it's a very important uh, resource for Shakespearean research, but it's also a very helpful thing for helping to rebut some of the crazier, you know, heretical theories and that kind of thing. So yeah, Shakespeare documented, have a look at that. And there's some other importance for Shakespearean resources on the web as well. And I'd point you in the direction of, for example, of the Folger uh, Shakespeare site as well. And there's a wonderful and vibrant conversation on Twitter about Shakespeare and Shakespearean bibliography, but also Shakespearean performance and other aspects. So um, yeah, have, have a look at the book subcultures and the Shakespeare subcultures on Twitter as well. Fantastic. I don't know if I've been to the Shakespeare documented, so I'm going to check that out straight after this. And Stuart, thank you so much for taking the time to talk tutors with us. It's been really fascinating to hear about your work and your research. Thank you. It's been great. And uh, yeah, congrats on, on how you're uh, series is going and huge, huge thanks to you for what you're doing. It's brilliant. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners. So if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. <music> <laughs>